I'm Mel. And I'm Tosh. And welcome to season five and another episode of Mahogany Mammology, an online dialogue pertaining to the concerns and carefree parenting of Black motherhood. Woo-hoo, season five. Yes, yes. Well, if you are a new or longtime listener, Tosh and I have researched and discussed topics and subjects with a focus on how to impact Black motherhood. We encourage you to review our listener notes and subscribe to the Monday Mammologist. And now, on to the show. Hey now. So, with season five, today we are discussing Black sustainability as it relates to increasing our knowledge about urban gardening. Um, I think this is more than just a con- uh, just um, a casual grower of plants, right? Not that it shouldn't start there, but more intentional about gardening to combat food injustice in the black and brown low income areas. And so with staff shortages affecting logistical supply issues over the last two years, uh, basic food necessities are in short supply, right? We can no longer, you know, really go to a grocery store. Grocery stores are looking very empty on these shelves, right? Additionally, uh, vegetable recalls are noted more frequently, right? And so we are mm-hmm. questioning, one, where our food comes from, two, and our finances and how our finances are constrained more than ever due to this. So inflation, I, that inflation, inflation short staff, not enough for delivery. So why not grow our own, right? So we are here to act. To expand our thoughts on the subject with our guest mammologist, Aishima Harris Wadregu. Thank you and welcome. And I hope I pronounced your name correctly. That's fine. Um, that's how you're supposed to pronounce it. Oh, you know. uh oh. <laughs> that's what's up. That's what's up. Well, everyone, meet Ashima Harris Adregu, and she started her journey in the food justice movement over 10 years ago as a Green Gorillas youth tiller. We'll get into that in a moment. A Jamaican native, she struggled with the process of assimilation into a new culture. Through farming, she found great comfort in her community. Throughout her involvement in the movement, Shima has taught food justice, advocated for universal free school lunch, assisted in the development and sustainment of youth-led organizations. Okay, moms, you're going to start making notes because we got to get the kids involved, right? And now she is the project director of East New York Farms. She is dedicated to integrating youth empowerment and leadership into adult-dominated sectors, show enough, and with a double major in political science and sociology, she is wishes to combine her passion for food justice and her knowledge of American politics to drive what? The importance of food in people's everyday lives. Welcome again. Welcome. Yes. Welcome. 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 I'm. A, I will say, as an aside, no joke. I was looking at your website and just, um, well, East New York Farms and just the whole um, UCC. It reminds me of summer camp, a summer camp that I used to go to um, when I was little, and not so much the 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 um, urban gardening part of it they could have had it I'm, I was just too young to remember you know what I mean so I was like five six but as far as the preschooling um the education and the camp in of itself was housed in a housing development um uh, uh building and I went to two you know two different ones <clears throat> and so I thought I mean looking through the website and everything it really brought me back um to all of that so I was just like I'm so excited to like talk with you and interview you and kind of kind of see where you know where this goes so yeah anyway, I know sorry about that that wasn't a long aside but <laughs> yeah it just brought back some memories <laughs> 
No, thank you for sharing that. And I think it also connects to the importance of getting youth involved from a young age into urban agriculture and understanding what basic food production looks like and what is a different form of food production and who plays those roles in that so that we could grow a little bit more respect for each other in the movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think Black sustainability um, in, the, in, in urban community gardening is gaining traction? It is. Um, I do think it is gaining traction, especially now that the pandemic, everybody's looking towards food and trying to understand how to better the food system. Before then, um, the food system was so left behind. Like there would be this one grant that focused on everything food related, but not necessarily farming aspect. And especially when it comes to urban agriculture, um, a lot of grants and funding is more associated with rural agriculture. So now that there's intentional programming that's being designed to target um, grassroots agriculture, I think is definitely um, shedding a light on the food movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what, what do you think would be like successful core I don't know, beliefs, thought process, I don't know, you know what I mean, for successful gardening and like longevity in, in a community such as like East New York or like Brownsville or just, you know what I'm saying? First, we need to start with our root cause, with our trauma um, that has been tied to slavery uh, because moving to the U.S. and getting involved with urban agriculture and talking to my peers at the time, our teenagers in middle school and high school about growing their own food, the first thing that comes to mind is you're a slave or this is slave labor. Um, yes, because American system is not designed to teach us about our excellence. It's always designed to teach us about how to keep on suppressing us. Um, and because that lack of knowledge, uh, people tend to focus urban ag or agriculture in general with farm labor, slavery, etc. And because of that negative connotation, we find a lot of young people not being able to to be committed to the movement or to the or to just like growing food or learn about it. And if so, they try to beautify how food is being produced. Like, you know, like, let's not show you the actual farm and hard work that goes into it. Let's just show you it inside of a building, in a classroom. But I could talk about that a little bit more. Um, <laughs> in general... We gonna get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Keep going. yeah. Yeah. I think the trauma behind it, because a lot of our traumas are being passed down um, and also are being learned. So I always share with um, folks that I'm talking to that when I moved to the U.S., I had to re-traumatize myself and learn about Black American um, slave history because in Jamaica, we're more about liberation. We focus on our freedom and liberation and celebrate that. We're in America we're being taught to always remember where we're coming from. Therefore, mm. we're not able to move forward with that. So I was able to, I had a white mentor who actually opened me up to understanding racism and discrimination in the food movement. And um, also having conversations with white my white counterparts and like share with them my frustration and my anger and be able to decentralize that so that I could move on with the process of forgiving and bettering myself and I think until black Americans are able to do that um there's going to always be that trauma and stigma in us developing a more cohesive food movement it's very interesting you use the word re-traumatize yourself. I found that to be something like that stuck out. Um, have you had these conversations, I guess, with like Black Americans or Americans that, that have had, you know, generations in America? Mm -hmm. And, and I, their thought process on that? So for me, I am... Because I was able to openly expose myself to the elements of the emotions and going through the process of facing those emotions that I'm feeling, um, I was then able to 
be one with myself and my history. Um, but with African Americans in America, um, they don't have that outlet because whenever they try to create that safe space for them to have those conversations, it's always get ruined, right? And always be invaded. So how can we create a space for ourselves if whenever we do that, it's being threatened or we're being, we're being seen as a threat. So how do we move on from that? So the, the concept of becoming re-traumatized is like, I want to fight for my liberation, but you're not allowing me to. And there's various ways in histories and even in laws and current day practices that's causing that to happen. So what tends to happen is that a lot of anger is being pent up by African-American because they're not able to be given that freedom. And we've seen it across other platforms with other racial ethnicity or other religious secular beliefs groups where they're able to congregate together and create these safe systems for themselves and not be threatened or be viewed as a threat. Um, but when it comes to African-Americans, it's like, no, they can't, they can't do it. It's wrong for them to do it. It's wrong for us to have that freedom. Girl, that's a whole, look at me. That's a whole different conversation. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, so, we talking food, we talking food right now. Cause what you, what you getting into is straight 1619 project. <laughs> like, listen, but it has a great, it has, no, it has, it, and, and Ooh, I'm going to tell you what, it. I'll tell you what, I think one of my inspirations behind even this topic was that I was listening to their podcast and I'm not trying to give any spoilers, but they do talk, you know, one of their episodes talk, um, about the African-American history behind, behind farming, mm -hmm. right? And how that essentially, you know, was messed up. I don't, like I said, it's, it's very, it's, if you've ever listened to it, listeners, you know, if y'all haven't, I suggest you do, but it is a very emotional um, series of podcasts, but they, they go into that and how, and how, you know, basically, historically, you know, black people were farmers, right? And so mm -hmm. as time went on, you know, we lost that capability, right? Through various policies and, and you know, just everything that would, you know, decentralize us um, yeah. right. from, some, from thriving and surviving. So, but that, you know, it, it, you're right, Mel, you're right. I will say it, it is very multifaceted, it's intertwined, it is. So, but just that of itself is a whole other conversation. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, okay. and it happens today even with like on the, on the ground because the mindset that we're, that, that has been passed on or we've developed over time is like, this is mine and this is for me, therefore I need to keep it as it is. And as we find, especially mm. in East New York with urban agriculture, you have gardeners or community gardens where it's only one member. How is that a community garden if there's only one member that's facilitated that? And because of their experiences, um, like a community gardener who's in her 70s, don't want to allow for the younger generation to come to that garden because for her, that's threatening, right? Mm. Because she doesn't want to lose her stake um, in the garden and being able to make that decision or not being able to adjust to change. And those are things that we're seeing today. Like with this, because we've been so divided and separated throughout history, it's like whenever we're trying to bridge um, or come together as a community, we still are fighting those um, learned behaviors that mm -hmm. history just forced upon us. So even in community gardens, you're, you're seeing that divide that's taking place continuously. Hmm. I'm curious to know um, what in your, like the, the youth-led programs that you have, what is it that you're doing to overcome the objectives of the young of the youth, if you will, in terms of hey, I ain't trying to do this. That's slavery stuff. Like, what what types of things are you guys doing over there that that are that have worked? We've exposed them to every single thing. <laughs> like, oh. we do not sugarcoat our approach. We do not sugarcoat the lessons. We're like, 
this is your community. Let's do a community walk. This is a history of your community. And therefore, this is why your community was like this. Like, these are the laws that were passed continuously to develop your community to how it is today. Now, how do you see your elected official playing a role into that? Why is voting important? How do you play a role into voting? So we touch on every single thing in our program and most of the time our interns are like we don't want to go to school why can't we learn here um and some of the times they literally will look forward to come to the program because of the conversations that we have with them when it comes to home ownership when it comes to debit and credit we even have those conversations with them because they don't understand what it is like i will tell my youth do not take out a stupid loan. These are the types of stupid loans. These are the types of a stupid credit card. This is how you pay for your credit card. This is how you build your credit. This is what the debit and credit means. Like, you know, and those are the conversations that they're not able to have at home. So we open up the floor and have those conversations to them, even open up the floor for them to share their raw emotions. Like you have a youth that will share personal details with us that they don't share at home or with their friends. And we create that space to hold everyone accountable and to also make sure that everyone is supporting each other in the space. So we don't shy away from anything that we're that's happening in the world. We always tie it back to the work that they're doing today because a part of food justice, you play different roles. Like you don't have to be a farmer. We always tell them that you don't have to be a farmer. You could be um, a policy developer. You could be a policy advocate. You could do all these different things. You don't have to be a farmer. That's not food justice. Like, you know, food justice encompasses everything similar to any other social justice movements that are going on in the world. I love it. I absolutely love it. Girl, so why, why East New York as a location for the organization versus somewhere like Flatbush, East Flatbush that have, well, Brooklyn is Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn is Brooklyn mm-hmm. and it's a big, you know, melting pot of everything, you know. But in the beginning, you alluded, you basically, you know, alluded to being a Jamaican native, you know, why 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 east new york versus like i say flatbush square or east flatbush or any other area that has have well the brooklyn i remember <laughs> that are heavily that have heavily concentrated areas of people from the caribbean uh, so the way how our organization was founded which is united community center so it was founded in east new york brooklyn um, in one of the affordable housing, which is now called NYCHA, New York City Housing Development Association. Um, and back then in the 1960s, it was heavily populated with a lot of Jewish settlers or settlers from Europe that are white. And they founded the organization as a settlement house where immigrants who migrated could then file a lot of social service support within the community. Um, over time, as the population changed, like when when um, segregation was found illegal, people, a lot of black settlers from the South were moving to the North to find opportunities. So over time, the population started to change with a lot of black settlers from the South. That led to white flight, and white flight caused a lot of abandoned properties, lots, uh, available lots, um, vacant buildings. So what the community gardens are trying to do is to beautify their space. Because they have ties to farming from the South, they're able to use and take advantage of that knowledge to beautify their community, to bring back value to their community. So East New York was heavily devastated from a white um, population neighborhood into a Black neighborhood. So Black um, Americans were able to transform a lot of abandoned lots into community garden spaces in order to bring some form of commodity, I can't even say that word, some form of unity (laughs) in the community. (laughs) So, uh, and and to add to that as well, um, a lot of people, a lot of these communities did not have a lot of grocery stores, access to healthy food, to fresh food, especially culturally relevant foods. So in order for them to create that opportunity and to connect to their roots, people growing their own food made sense. Um, and doing it as a community made sense for them. So East New York 
similar to other communities who have gone through this process of white flight, you've seen a lot of community gardens that are then created to replace um, the after effects that white flight had on the community. And because it became a heavily populated black and brown neighborhood, even to this day, majority of our residents are black folks. Um, and then we have um, Latinos that's in the community. And it, it represents like the, I guess the, the safety that the community was able to, to reinstate for themselves and also the, the kind of relationship that were, that they are built that they were building through the process of growing their own food. Hmm. Have you received any um any pushback you know I guess from non black and brown people as you guys continue to have this organization um kind of just thrive because like you said it was originally essentially for your, you know your Jewish population which were you know the I don't want, before they were one of the main habitants habitants mm -hmm. of the East New York um, area so now that they've moved and moved and if you are familiar uh, listeners listeners may not be familiar with the demographics of Brooklyn and there's also kind of other social nuances behind that um in that you know uh your Jewish population like you alluded to very much are, are very tight-knit um population and they and they help each other and they will do that in their enclaves right so wherever they decide to move right they'll do that so being that they've moved out of East New York for the most part and and surrounding areas like are you getting any pushback from like non-black and brown people um with having continuing to have this organization no i think if not i think the white bodies are they remove themselves from the organization and allow for representation organization to be of the communities so when you look at our organization leadership it's black and brown staff um, that holds those positions. Um, we get pushback from gentrifiers. I remember. Girl, that was my question. Yeah. That was my <laughs> next question. <laughs> I remember, like, the beginning of the pandemic, we were doing a lot of food distributions um, outside of our farms. And one morning, we were walking the perimeter of the farm, and this guy is just like, oh, this is stupid. Why don't they make this into a community garden? I was like, did you just move here? He said, yeah, a couple months ago. I live across the street. I was like, exactly. This farm has been here for 20 years. What are you talking about? He was like, but they could build this into apartment buildings. And I'm like, we have a ton of apartment buildings in New York City. We don't need any more. Like, you know, and to me, that kind of ticks me off because the way how people think nowadays is just like if they see an empty lot they don't think about oh let me turn this into something that's viable for the community it's like how can i make money and they think about homelessness when it's like the city have enough empty apartment buildings to help homelessness to stop homelessness but there's no anyways but anyway, <laughs> look, at me, look, at me, look at me go go off says that's all I'm saying I'm like there's no mm -hmm. it's more than enough and like East New York is going through a phase of like rezoning where mm -hmm. literally all the abandoned lots are being taken up by these developers and what's gonna happen is like what Manhattan is like right now Manhattan hardly have any open space if it's not Central Park or a little small tiny park and what happens over time is that when it comes to climate change, what's going to happen with, her, with the storm waters? Like, you know, what's going to happen when it comes to runoff systems? Like, you know, and the and, and summer, I don't want to stay here in the summertime. I know it's going to be super hot. It's hot. <laughs> it's just stagnant. It's stagnant air, truly, because yeah. buildings are just, they're just, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just attracts heat. And it's, yes. And now, and now what? New York City, one of a part of their policy for new developers is that if we're going to be developed 
developing a building, you have to have some form of green, green roof or green infrastructure. To me, it's BS because it still doesn't help. It does. You place in a green roof, which is maybe some flowers or grass or whatever. That does not help. They can get around the, that, right? It's not enough. Yeah, it's not enough it's not. greenery to to, to to sustain a good, you know, for them to, you know, have good, have your good, you know, yeah. air circulation, you know, ecosystems. Yeah. Thank you. That's what and, I'm looking for, for a good ecosystem. Yeah. And my fear is that urban agriculture, when it comes to working with the soil and just like getting deep into the ground, is going to become a practice that is long lost over time. Because what we're seeing as cities are becoming more populated or redeveloping, you see a lot of aquaponic, hydroponic system that are indoors. So what you're telling me now is that we're going to get rid of this land so that you could grow inside when that is not even what our ancestor wanted. Like that, like, how can you, how can we connect to our, our ancestors and connect to the land? If you're pushing me inside, how can um, kids go outside and play in dirt? If everything is going to become inside of a building. Right. And to me, my fear is that, the art of urban art culture is going to become something that's no longer existed. And when it comes to rural farming, like what does that look like when the city is out of space? Like it, it's, it's just, there's no, there's no, um, it's crazy. Yeah. There's no, there's no, okay, this is enough. Let's stop. It's always, how can I get more? How can I earn more? How can I do more? How can I be better than last year? But, we are digging ourselves into something that is going to take a longer time for us to get out of. And to me, it's scary because we're thinking about like having kids in the future, et cetera. Like what world are you going to leave behind for them? Like you could build generational wealth, but what world is there going to be if there's no generation for you to leave your wealth to like, you know, it just make it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Now, are there like different, land trust um that are in new york or companies that you can partner with that to kind of help um get some of these areas there's different land trusts um you have brooklyn queens land trust you have east new york land trust but land trusts are privately owned and unique in the way of like for for our farms and some of our community gardens, they're operated by the government. So the city is the one who owns the land that we operate on. So we have two farms and two community gardens and one of our farm and one of our community gardens, well, two of our farms and one of our community gardens is owned by, well, all of them are owned by the city, different agencies, <laughs> different agencies. <laughs> And they have their own protocols, um, but one of the city agency, which is New York Parks um, Department, which um, Green Thumb, which is the garden overseers of the city, they're the one who kind of like license our gardens, kind of protect our gardens from developers by saying, this is owned by the city, this garden is protected, you cannot use it to build properties on. Um, and you have other agencies like Department of Transit that owns land. Like one of our gardens is now there. But at any moment, they could say, we want that space because there's going to be a development next to the garden and they want to build a street on it. Um, and you have other agencies that are super private where they have the say to what goes on and who is in charge of what. So it is a piecemeal situation that you're that you just have to be in you just have to know all the regulations you have to basically kiss everybody's ass to not get kicked out of your space and yeah it's, it's stressful over time just to grow food is stressful Girl, who, say, you, you have, who do you have to thank for that <laughs> politically <laughs> they're gonna be gone and say who you got to thank for that 
Oh my god. <laughs> Wait. No, I'm not calling I'm not calling you out or anything, but I you know, I've no. I've followed um it like you mentioned, it is it's stressful and it's and it's political too. And the last two political uh figureheads mayors of New York um have been you know very it's it's really truly like catapulted the trajectory of the capitalism of New York City because they're both billionaires right so I mean they could really care less about green life right because they're all about the money one being Republican one being a Democrat <laughs> yeah. Um and I don't know, you know, I don't know too much about this new mayor, but I wonder um it's like you touched on, you know, how gardening is political and it's like what would you like to see change? What would you like to see happen? Um whether it be policy, whether it be reaching out to your local um, councilmen, what would you like mm-hmm. to see politically that will improve the 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 situation of green life and, and increasing urban gardening in 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 these areas? Whether it be East New York, yeah. Brownsville, Flatbush, wherever you know, what I mean. Um, I would love for there to be a more well, now Eric Adams, Eric Adams is in office. They've created an urban agriculture office, but that's based on research. It's useless. Trust me. Oh. <laughs> that's based on, it's just like, I was, yeah, it's based on research. Um, and uh, that's it. Um, what do you mean it's based I'm, on research? Like, what does so that mean? They, ba- they basically have to work with all these agencies in the city that focuses on urban agriculture and get data and reporting from the urban gardeners. Um, and then based on their findings, they will make either proposal to Eric Adams or they will just like give an accurate count of how many urban gardens are in the city. What are they using it for? Um, maybe how they're receiving funding, how many people are gardening in there and like maybe come up with like an actual acreage of New York City land space that's using as green spaces. But it's useless because when I when when I saw a preview of the bill before it became formal, I was like, is this office gonna be in charge of creating um, grants that could directly impact um, the food movement in New York City? They're like, no. And I'm like, so what's the point of this? Because community gardeners are tired. They need support. They don't want you to come and ask for a bunch of information for nothing because that's what the city have been doing all for years. Like, honestly, there is no urban agriculture bill in New York state. The only bill that was passed before pre pandemic was through Raphael Espinal, who was a council member for a part of my district. And that bill was to preserve community garden space and for them not to be seen as an open lot or, or abandoned lot. Because typically in the past, when developers will try to see lots that are available in a community garden, they will community gardeners will show up as an open lot. And then what happens is that those gardeners were being harassed consistently for the for them to sell the land to the developers so with that bill being passed when you look on google maps right now you could see actual community gardens name on google maps before it was never there so that was the only bill in like 20 2018 2019 that was passed outside of that there is no other bill to say all right, we're going to ensure the viability of community gardeners by creating and supporting youth programs to help with the food production in New York State. We have to hunt for funding as nonprofit organizations. Community gardeners, they're not a 501c3, so they could hardly get any kind of any kind of financial support. They are told they cannot sell their produce. If they do sell their produce that they're growing from the garden, it has to go back into the garden. But these community gardeners are also told that they need to have their garden available seven days a week for a set amount of hours. 
I, I've got hey, questions. Yes, got go, questions. go ask your question. Look at me, because I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to uh, propose a potential solution. And I'm trying to I see, but go ahead, ask your question. Ask your question. Well, I got a couple questions, so I apologize. So one, why are you not, why is it not considered a 501c3? Because in order for a community garden to be considered a 501c3, they have to go through a lot of the process. And to add to it, most of community gardeners are elders they don't know how to use technology well, right? And what we find is that even if we we release um, a mini grant award, they will ask for a physical document to fill out the, the awards. They won't go on their computer or their phone and type it in. So we find that that sets them back. And also they don't know the process of becoming a 501c3. So it kind of hinders them from applying to grants, et cetera, and just like receiving funds for their gardeners, for their gardens. Um, and that has been like one of the major reason why most community gardens aren't 501c3s is because of the entire process that goes behind it. Okay. And then my next question, and I ask these because this is what I feel like everyone needs to really understand to maybe start their own or work with their neighbors, um, mm-hmm. regardless of mm-hmm. regardless of your apartment situation or mm-hmm. home, suburbs, whatever have you. Um, my next question is, with the empty uh, lands, and I, I understand there's developers that are coming after these lands, is there not, and you don't have to answer this, maybe this, I'm just putting this down to the universe, mm-hmm. is there not a developer... Is there not a developer that is looking to go, you know what? Nope. <laughs> you see them getting nope. I know like, I know where you're like, going. Why with can't that. they nope. build both? Not why in New York. Why can't they nope. build both? Um okay, so I had a developer, not a developer, but a con- a, a contractor that was developing this huge apartment complex in East New York, he volunteered at our farm and I was talking to him and he showed me the building. I was like, oh, I pass that building every morning. And he was like, yeah, I can show you the specs and the the inside and stuff. And he showed it to me and I was like, oh, you guys have a nice green roof. And he was like, yeah, but no one could use it. And I was like, what do you mean no one could use it? He was like, it's just there just to be there. But none of the tenants or the residents could use it. How could they not use it? Like, could they not access it? Do they not know they how to use it? They can't. They, 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 the developers of the building who's in charge of the, ma- the management company who's in charge of the building is not provide or granting those residents the access to go on the roof for reasons I don't know. But wow. In, but in order to, to appeal city developers and to get their contracts through the door and to get their proposal approved a lot of them will make a plan to have green and infrastructure but that doesn't mean they will follow through with it so you might have a green roof that's just sitting there not being used so was he volunteering essentially just to scope out the area no, he was just volunteering because he he grew up on a farm in okay. in old New York. All right, all right, fair enough. Because you know sometimes you know there's always an ulterior motive. Right? So I thought that that's what I'm saying. I was like, mm. he's coming in, he's checking the specs. You know what I'm saying? No. So that he can. Well, this this farm in particular is already on a government agency plot, so he wouldn't be able to do yeah. anything on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know that but, I know that I know. But yeah, no, not really. Um, we get a lot of interest in volunteers and corporate groups that comes out and volunteer with us. Um, just for them to feel good, I guess. For yeah, them to look of good, of course, of course. So, hypothetically speaking, say there is a plot, you know, someone, you know, there's an area of land in in East New York, right? And like me and Mel and, you know, uh, Shaniqua and them decide we want to pull, you know, a little $2,000 together, say the lot is for sale. 
right? Mm -hmm. The lot is for sale. And we want to pull our little, you know, money together and, and purchase this lot. It's now privately owned, right? Right. Yeah. Um, could we potentially figure out or do something where it's like, okay, well, we purchased this lot and just like how we said, you know, we're going to build something on there, right? I build a greenhouse. <laughs> so I've built a piece of property. I've built something almost, almost the reverse to the gentleman that, that, you know, has the, the green on top of right. the building, right? Could right. we, could we potentially do a reversal? Yeah. Like when you're privately owned, you're in charge of everything that takes place on your property. Um, so it's easier for you to build a greenhouse for you to build however much garden beds you want to build. Um, it gets more complicated. Like, you know, like if you want to build a store on it, like a farm to a farm to food or a farm to pantry, stuff model you can do that so privately owned you have a ton of freedom a ton of freedom like we have backyard gardeners we have gardeners who are who owns their own like home and behind they grow their food um in their backyards and we call and they're able to either sell at a farmer's market or use it however they want to use it but when you privately own your land you could do whatever you please with it um when it's owned by the government that or when it's owned by someone else that's where it becomes a lot more trickier so for us like we recently built a greenhouse last year at one of our farms and we had to send all the measurements and get it approved before we even start developing the greenhouse to green them so they could say yes this is okay this is appropriate we had to follow certain guidelines um and sometimes it's, it's frustrating um but like you said earlier like growing food in the city in urban in urban gardens or in urban structures it's very political super political for no reason there's so many laws and guidelines that you have to follow and in fact like going back to the the history of like urban agriculture in the city when urban agriculture starts to become a thing there wasn't any agency to supervise what was going on. And then the city created Green Thumb. So Green Thumb is like the hub for gardeners to go to for support, um, protection. Um, but it became a lot more political than it has to be. Um, and also to a certain extent discouraging, especially for gardeners that are older and that has been growing food before I was born. What about, have, um, what is your interactions with the different schools that are nearby, um, your locations? How, how is that going? Mm -hmm. So we have school visits. Schools will reach out to us to do a volunteer day or just a tour of the farms. We also, because we have a youth internship program, we do a lot of outreach with the schools that are nearby that are high schoolers, um, some middle schoolers. So our interaction is pretty decent. With schools over time, because of like turnover, communications get lost easily. So most of the time we also rely on our youth interns to do a presentation of the program at their schools to get their friend engaged. Um, we reach out to teachers to inform them about the schools. And then you have folks who visit our farmer's market that, that are teachers in school. Um, we go into the classroom and we facilitate workshops, uh, hands-on learning activities. Um, we also have our youth interns in the program do the same along with us. So we are super involved in the schools that are in our community. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. I do too. What What's next for you? Are you, um, I mean, I don't want to give out any secrets, I guess. I don't know if you are <laughs> look, willing to travel to other places. Like what, what's on your trajectory? My, what's next for me? Um, well, I'm getting my master's in public administration. I, 
don't know if I want to work in government after seeing <laughs> how government is all over the place. We but, need an insider though. See, right? you know what I'm saying? But, you know, it is frustrating. It, it is, is frustrating. Like we it's had a council slow. member quit. Like we had a council member quit, and it's like, what? Yeah, no. <laughs> I my ideal job is to travel the world and create systems um, that communities could use for themselves instead of having to rely on the government to provide it for them. So that's like developing a youth, a national youth internship program similar to East New York Farms um, and implementing farming practices where it's like rainwater catchment system. Like my husband, he's from Burkina Faso and he's telling me that his country hardly has water. And I'm like, do you guys have a rainwater catch harvesting system that you're, that you guys could use when you don't have water to farm with? And he said, no. And I'm like, I would love to go there and like develop systems like that, developing programs where communities could really like maintain themselves, save their own seeds, come together, do their harvest, crop, their crop plantings together, share their food instead of making this monetary thing becomes a thing. So that's my dream job, honestly, um, <laughs> because I love developing programs, especially programs for youth, because. I remember when I was younger, if my teacher in high school didn't take me to New Jersey for the summer to do a water research project, I would have never got connected to the work that I'm doing right now. Mm. Um, and I think that it only takes that one person to believe in a, in a young person so that they could see their potentials um, and to motivate them and kind of like craft them as a person um to go into the real world and just like face their fears and learn and grow from that so I, that's what i want to do i want to motivate young people i want to create spaces for them where they're taking leadership and also creating space for others to do the same yes well you hear awesome. it first listeners so you know help us <laughs> y'all looking out. for some you know what I'm saying? Help us to style. Let's make this. Where can they home. find you? Where can they find you in these uh, uh, social media streets? So by my name, Aishima. I mainly be on Instagram, though. I'm not going to lie. And I hardly post. I'm so, like, tight-knit. I'm like, I'm no, like a, so Look at me. I was like, that's a young person. And I'm so, <laughs> so young, people. No, I'm we'll be here trying to get you jobs and stuff. We'll, we'll, um, we'll put her contact information in the I'm show gonna, notes. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I'm also on LinkedIn, Aishima Harris. I'm there. there. You go. So LinkedIn, Instagram, you could contact me, DM me, reach me personally. Um, yeah. And my email, my direct email is AishimaH at gmail.com. Okay, listeners, this is what I want y'all to do. I need y'all to pull over to the car. I know half y'all be driving when you're listening to us. Get the show notes. I need you to email this lovely lady Absolutely. and figure out how you're going to work in the community with her. I don't know y'all scrap up. Don't go to Starbucks for a week. You and your 20 friends or whatever. Stop going to Starbucks for a week. Save up some monies so you can fly her out uh, to your respective neighborhood and and have her work with you guys hands on and change your communities um, that are that are, you know, in need. Um, I don't care if you do have a grocery store right down the street. Um, let's let's work together and figure out how we can one like how you were saying it. It's like to teach a child uh, to relearn something that that we should be doing and growing your own food. That's science, the politics of it, um, the history of it, because what we grow, um, there's some history behind that. There's certain, there's a certain movie or a series about rice and uh, how certain rice um, was in our hair um, when we came over on ships and that whole thing. I'm not going to dive into that, but I'll put it in the show notes on what show to watch. And they did not pay for this episode. So it's not an endorsement. Right. right. Um, <laughs> but my point is you a lot of you guys are you know looking for actionable items this is actionable this is something you can do today for real. and there's enough 
enough of us black moms out here, we can scrub together some $20. You know, we're in enough organizations and enough groups that we can work together to figure out how do we do this as an activity, reach out to her if you're not sure how to make that happen as an activity, something. Or, you know, how do we get her information over to another person that would need it? So it transfers. It can be just doing this does not require a whole lot of uh, startup money. That's that's what we're alluding to. You know, we definitely want to see our neighborhoods beautiful and green again. And and we can do that just with what we have, our own hands and our own feet and build the community and kind of build within your family. Showing, like you said, Mel, you know, it build, it shows, it, it, it gives kids the confidence that, that they, they've started something and now look at this beautiful thing, you know? So yes, we, we got to get this, we got to get this rolling. So Mm, mm, mm. thank you thank you so 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 much for coming on the show i know we could have had side discussions about various things you know because it's so Mm -hmm. it's it's as you were saying community gardening is so multifaceted who knew you know like there's a whole political agenda behind this you know so new york city residents i i i encourage you to um reach out to your local congressperson and ask them can we have a community garden in our neighborhood i'll just say because i don't remember i don't you know i wasn't familiar with east new york but there is there was uh, uh, i believe bedford avenue community gardens too a long time ago but i don't know if it's still there but anyway but yes that's all you need each area in new york each area just needs two look at me two community gardens <laughs> two community gardens and ask them and ask them and practically like i said you know if you see an open land and y'all got some money you know y'all can just always purchase the lot and you and know have what? a garden That's that what way. We have to do. Mm-hmm. So, anywho, right. go on, Mel. Go on, close us out. Look at me. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Tosh has already got ideas. So, with that in mind, please check out additional resources and links in the show notes where you can find more information about our topics and, of course, our bio for Shima. Um, we ask that you rate and review this and other episodes. You can definitely do so by sending us a DM or you can email us at mahoganymomology at gmail.com. Continue the conversation via our Facebook and Twitter pages, of course, Instagram. Until next time, I'm Mel. And I'm Tosh. And we thank you for listening to Mahogany Momology. Bye-bye. Yay. Thank you.